If you guys want to grab a seat, I'll get us started with today's message. Like Bevan said, my name's Elliot, and I'm the Connection Pastor here. And today we are going to wrap up this series we've been looking at for the last few weeks called Unstuck. Now, um, when I was in college, I I went to school in another state, and when I was in um, college, one Christmas break, there was this really big snowstorm that came through. And um, one of my buddies reached out and said, hey, I'm getting back in the airport. Can you come pick me up? So, you know, I contacted another friend. I was like, hey, like, let's go get him from the airport. So we we head out in the snow one night to go up to the airport and uh, get our friend. And the snow had been falling for a few days, and there was quite a bit of snow on the roads. And the snow snow plows had been out, and so they had cleared a few of the roads, but because the snow kept falling, um, the, the, the roads that hadn't been cleared, the snow was pretty deep, and then even the roads that were clear and drivable, you know, there was still fresh snow, so it was kind of hard to tell, like, okay, am I on a clear road or am I on a road with a lot of deep snow? So as we're driving up there um, to get my friend from the airport, as we get closer to the airport, you know how it is at airports, you know, it, it, I don't know about you, but I find airports confusing to drive at. You know, you got the arrivals and the departures and the terminals, and I'm not quite sure which one to turn into, and... So we're getting there, and the snow's falling, and I can't really see that great, and I'm kind of confused, so I take a wrong turn. And I turn off of the road that's plowed onto a road that had not been driven on for a few days and tons of fresh snow. And to make it even worse, the snow plows had gone through, and when they had, they had made this snow bank that I couldn't see. It was covered with fresh snow. So I, I drove a Honda Civic at the time. And if you know anything about Honda Civics, you know that they're not really snow-worthy vehicles. <laughs> so I make this wrong turn, and I get up on this snowbank in this fresh snow, and I'm stuck. So my buddy and I, we get out of the car, and we're kind of assessing the situation, trying to figure out what's going on. We can see down on the road that we were supposed to stay on, see car after car that didn't make the decision we did, and they just keep going by, and they're going to the right spot. So, you know, we start digging the, the car out, and we're trying to get it free, and we're pushing on it, and then finally, after what felt like forever, we finally get it free and back down the road and onto the main road that we were supposed to stay on, and we get in to the airport. So we park, get out, go inside, and we're waiting a baggage claim for our friend, and as we're standing there, there's a lot of other students, because a lot of planes were coming in at that time, so there's a lot of other students standing there waiting, and we knew quite a few of them. So one of them comes up to me, and he starts talking about the weather, and man, have you ever seen anything like this? This is crazy weather. And then he was like, hey, by the way, did you see the guy that got stuck up the road? <laughs> and he throws in, man, that guy must not know how to drive in the snow. Stinks for that guy. And I knew it was me. I knew it was me. But I didn't want to admit it was me. So I kind of let out the awkward, like, yeah, I saw that guy, you know. And then I just didn't say anything else, just kind of slowly distanced myself. Because, I mean, let's face it, it was embarrassing. It was. I didn't want to admit it. And that's kind of a reality about getting stuck in life is it can be embarrassing. And I'm not just talking about getting stuck when you're driving in the snow. I'm talking about just in life in general. I mean, it can be embarrassing to get stuck. We don't want to admit it. We don't want to tell other people that we're stuck. I mean, often we know that we're stuck. We know that we keep spinning the wheels and we're not getting any traction. And we might even try to do new things and try new approaches, but we keep getting the same result. And we're like, what gives, man? What's going on? But we don't want to admit it. We don't want to ask for help. And we don't want to tell people, this is what I'm thinking or this is what I'm experiencing or this is what I'm feeling because it can be embarrassing to get stuck. And the reason that we often get stuck is usually not because of the size of the challenge on the outside. It's usually the size of the challenge on the inside. You know, we can face some really big challenges in life, 
But it's often, it's not what's, you know, the circumstances or what's going on around us. It's often what we think in our heads and then feel in our hearts that that often is what determines if we're able to get traction and get moving or if we just stay stuck in the situations that we find ourselves in. So in this series, what we've been doing is we've been exploring five emotionally powerful thoughts that first get us stuck and then keep us stuck. Here's the thoughts. The first one we looked at is it's too hard. Then we looked at it's not fair. It's not what I want. Last week we talked about I'm too tired, and today we're going to look at a final thought that gets us stuck. We're going to look at the thought, I'm the only one. I'm the only one. Have you ever thought that? I thought, I mean, just this week, honestly, there were a few times where I was going through a situation or a challenge came my way, and I thought, oh, I'm the only one that has to put up with this. I'm the only one that has to, has to navigate this and go through this. I mean, this is a common thought. And my guess is you've probably thought this too. Maybe even this morning, some of you are in a situation where you're thinking, I'm the only one that has to go through this. And this thought, I'm the only one, it's an emotionally charged thought. And there's really two primary emotions that go along with this thought. It's the emotion of pride or self-pity. These are kind of the emotions that fuel this thought. Maybe, maybe on the pride side, maybe this is what it might look like on the pride side. Maybe, maybe for you, maybe you think you're really cool. Maybe you think that your estimation of what is cool and what's trendy and what, what's hip, maybe you just think, man, I'm, I've got it figured out. I know what it means to be cool. I'm cool. And so then maybe you get around a group of people who, you know, in your assessment, well, they're just not that cool. So maybe this is what this sounds like for you. Maybe you say, you know, these people don't want to know what it means to be f- cool. I'm the only one here who really knows what it means to be cool. Maybe pride is fueling that thought. I'm the only one. Or maybe it's self-pity. You know, maybe you have a background or a past that no one else has. Or maybe you've gone through some really hard stuff in life. Maybe you've experienced some severe trauma. And so you might say it like this. Maybe you say, you know, no one here could possibly understand me. I can't relate to these people. I'm the only one who's had it this hard. So there's two emotions that can really drive and fuel this thought. And whichever side it comes from, whether it comes from the pride side or the self-pity side, the thought, I'm the only one, it leads to one place. And that place is isolation. And you know what? Isolated people, not only do they get stuck, but then they stay stuck. Why? Well, they're isolated. There's no one around to help them out. So for you and me, when we think this thought, I'm the only one, what can you and I do to get unstuck? And that's what we're going to look at this morning. And there's actually an example in in the life of a guy named Elijah. And Elijah dealt with this thought, the thought, I'm the only one. And he dealt with it both from the pride side and from the self-pity side. And so we're going to, this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to kind of, we're going to work through his story, become familiar with what happened in his life and how he, how he dealt with these this thought. And then at the end, we're going we're gonna to make a few observations that apply to you and me and can help us really get some traction and get unstuck when it comes to this thought. So let's dive into the story of Elijah and see what we can learn. Elijah, he was a prophet for the nation of Israel, and he lived about 800 years before Jesus came to give his life for our sins. And when you read Elijah's story, it's found in the book of 1 Kings primarily, but when you read through his story, what you realize is he showed up at a really low point in Israel's history. What was going on is Israel had decided to stop following God, and they started to follow false gods, primarily a god by the name of Baal. 
And one of the reasons, you know, they didn't just wake up one day and say, you know what, we're done with God. We're going to shift and start following Baal. It kind of happened over time. And one of the reasons they made this shift is because Baal was the type of God who he kind of, he offered a formula for following him. Kind of like a, well, if you do A and then B, then C will just automatically happen. And so, whereas following the God of the Bible, that, that required faith and a relationship, and they were like, you know what, we don't really know, we really like this formula approach. Just, I know if I do X, Y, and Z, this is going to be the result. And Baal, he was known as the God who controlled the weather. And they lived in an agrarian society. So their economy, it was built on agriculture. So if you wanted to do well, you really wanted the rain to come at the right time of year. And you didn't want it to rain at the wrong time of year. So they thought, oh, okay, well, so all we have to do is worship this God Baal and do these things, and then if we do that, then suddenly the rain will show up at the right time of year. That sounds like a great deal. We'll do that. So instead of following God, they shift their allegiance and they start following Baal. So this is kind of the environment that Elijah enters into, and when he shows up, the first thing he does is he challenges their faith in Baal, and he says, okay, you know what? There's going to be a drought in the land. Severe drought, the worst, one of the worst droughts we've had. It's actually going to be so severe, not only is there not going to be any rain, there's not even going to be any dew. So really what he's saying is, hey, you guys think Baal controls things? You think he controls the weather? That's not true. Actually, God controls it. So we're going to prove it to you. So he shows up and he says, okay, there's going to be a drought. And with a drought comes famine. So life starts to get really hard, and they keep doing this formula, and then they start going, like, wait a second, like we keep doing the formula, but it's not really working. What gives? So then they finally start to go to a point where they're starting to ask some questions. And then three years after the drought started, Elijah shows up again. And this time when he shows up, he sets up this showdown between God and Baal, kind of this like this competition, this test. Well, let's find out who the real God is. So he goes to the king and he says, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to bring the 450 prophets of Baal and I want you to meet me at Mount Carmel and then let's tell all the people through the land that there's going to be this big showdown. So everybody comes, and they show up at Mount Carmel, and this is going to be this showdown between God and Baal, and they're going to find out which one's true. This is what it says, 1 Kings 18. It says, Elijah, he went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I'm the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal, he has 450 prophets. This is the first time we see this show up in Elijah's life. First time he says, I'm the only one. And actually what's interesting is if you read the story, it turns out he's not the only one. Because right before he goes to Mount Carmel and sets up this showdown, Elijah's told about a hundred other prophets who had been moved into hiding so they would be protected and they wouldn't be killed. So he knows he's not the only one. And we know he knows he's not the only one. But for some reason he gets up and he says, I'm the only one of the Lord's prophets. Now, maybe he's just playing up the drama. I mean, 450 versus one, I mean, that's a pretty interesting underdog story. Maybe he's just playing up the drama. Or maybe it is kind of from a sense of pride. Maybe he thinks, you know what? I'm the only one out here in the open. So I'm the only one who really takes God seriously. Yeah, those other guys, they might have the title prophet, but I'm the only serious prophet. I'm the only legitimate prophet because I'm the one out here in the open. So whatever the reason is, you start to see this thought creep in where he's saying, hey, I'm the only one. So then after saying this, what he does, he lays out the ground rules for the competition. It's a pretty interesting competition. He said, okay, here's what we're going to do. Let's set up two altars. Prophets of Baal get an altar. I'm going to set up an altar to God. We'll both put sacrifices on it. And then we'll take turns. We'll cry out to God. And whichever God responds from heaven with fire to burn up the, the, the sacrifice, that's the real God. 
And this is no just kind of like magic show competition. This is a high stakes competition. Because everybody knows if you're a false prophet in that period of time, if you're a false prophet who led the, the people astray and led them to do evil, you're supposed to be killed. So everybody understood that, okay, this is a winner lives, loser dies kind of competition. So Elijah lays out the ground rules, and it says that everybody agreed to the terms. So then they enter into this, and the prophets of Baal, they get to go first. And they actually do this for nine hours, nine hours of crying out to Baal. They, as you read it, you see that it's this like really emotional, they're just like pleading with him, like almost kind of this approach of like, if we just feel it strong enough, if, if in the core of our being, we believe hard enough that, that he'll respond, then he must respond. So they're dancing and they're shouting and they even go as far as to like, to show their belief, they start mutilating their bodies, just this, this just emotion to, oh, well, come on, if we just feel it enough, he'll respond. Nine hours. After nine hours, guess what? Nothing happens. Heaven is completely silent, no response. So then Elijah walks up and he does a few things and then after he does these things, then he, he actually just offers a simple prayer. It's not, this, it's not this emotionally charged kind of like, oh, if I just feel it enough, God will respond. He actually presents the prayer really similar to if you were going to somebody that you knew well and you trusted and you had a request for them. He actually presents it really similar to that. So he goes and he says, hey, God, if you respond, the people will turn back to you. So this is what it says happens. It says, then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the, ac- the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil. It also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And this is amazing. It's an amazing story that Elijah gets to be a part of. As you read this, it's like Baal, this, this false God who they believed to be real, he's proven to be what he is, a false God with no power. God, on the other hand, he's proven to be real. He's alive. He's active. He has the power. He responds to Elijah. I mean, this is amazing. And in response, the people turn and they start worshiping him. Then Elijah turns to the king in this setting and he says, okay, you need to hurry back to the city because tonight the drought's going to end. Tonight rain's going to come on the land. The God who really controls things, he's going to open up the heavens and the drought's going to be done. I mean, you read this and you think, man, what a... What an amazing thing to be a part of. You think just, what, what a high. I mean, how exciting. You just, you just think about the roller coaster of emotion. Is, is God going to respond? And then he does respond and just like, woo, God saved the day. You think everybody's super excited. Well, it turns out not everybody was really that excited. It turns out the queen, who she was kind of the main driver in getting the nation to turn and worship Baal, turns out she was pretty ticked off. Because not only had her God been proven to be false, But then all her prophets, well, they were on the losing end. And we already talked about what was going to happen to them. So what she says in response is she says, okay, Elijah, this time tomorrow, you're a dead man. We're coming for you and we're going to kill you. So Elijah's on this peak. He's thinking, hey, the nation's turned back. It's smooth sailing from here. Suddenly his life is, you know, put in jeopardy and this death threat on him. So you know what he does? He turns and he runs for his life. And it says he ran for his life. Now, something that's really interesting as you study the Bible, something that's really kind of has been jumping out at me lately is the use of geographical references. And as you read this story, there are actually some really interesting places that are mentioned. And if you you look at where Elijah was when he received word of the death threat, 
to where he goes into hiding, it's a distance of about 125 miles. And the way the story reads, some commentators have pointed out that it appears that Elijah covered that distance of about 125 miles in 24 hours. So, I mean, that's like ultra-marathon status. So I, I looked it up because I wanted to see, is that even possible? I mean, 125 miles in 24 hours, is that even possible? Turns out the record is 180 miles. But either way, whether he did it in 24 hours or whether it took him more, I mean, you can imagine just how exhausted he has to be when he reaches the place where he hides out. I mean, he's been running as hard as he can. And then it says this. He's exhausted. He gets to the place where he's going to hide out, and it says this. It says, he came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. If you've ever ran an ultramarathon, that is not that surprising. <laughs> he says, I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. Now, notice the shift. The first time he says, I'm the only one, it seems to be kind of from a place of, he's, he's maybe like bragging or he's boasting a little bit, but now he's definitely shifted into self-pity. I mean, he's discouraged. He's like, hey, I, ju I just did all these amazing things for you, God. I, you know, I was a part of the people turning back to you, and now, now the queen wants to kill me. You know what, God, I'm, I'm done. Just get it over with, God. I've had enough. I quit, is what he says. Now, something that's really important for us to notice in the story is the surprising way that God responds to Elijah. Because Elijah's in this situation, he's discouraged, and God's response actually comes by God giving him three next steps for him to take. And the first two steps are really interesting. The first two steps have to do with him just regaining his strength. Just kind of replenish yourself physically. You're, you're worn out, you're exhausted, just get your strength back. So it says this, this is the first step given to him. 1 Kings 19, verse 5, it says this, All at once, an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. Just get up and eat something. Just start to replenish your strength. Start to regain your energy. So he gets up, he eats something, he takes the first step. Then he lays back down. Then he is woken up by the angel again. A second step. The second step is actually the same. Hey, just get up and eat something. And this is really, really interesting. And I'm glad that this is included in the story because when you start to kind of add up the facts and start to study, you realize like he's exhausted. I mean, it appears he just ran an ultramarathon. His body is completely depleted. And if you, com if you combine being really, really tired with the thought, I'm the only one, you can end up in some really dark places just like Elijah did. And so the first steps to him getting unstuck that God gives him is just get up and eat something. Just start to regain your strength. And I appreciate that that's included because often those can be really, really helpful. Just, just eat something. Just get some rest. Just you know, start to regain your strength. But it's also important to recognize as we read this that even though those were steps in the process of getting unstuck, there was still more that Elijah needed to do. Because just regaining his strength, that really wasn't addressing what was going on in his heart. There were more steps that God had for him. And it actually works out really similar for you and me. I mean, you might be really discouraged. You might be in a situation where, yeah, you're having, a, you're having a hard time seeing a way forward. And actually taking care of your body physically, that might really help. But pay attention to this. Don't let feeling better physically convince you that your heart issues have been dealt with. I mean, that's what we'll so often do. I mean, we'll be going through kind of a hard period, a dark period, and we'll let one good day 
convince us that, oh, it's all resolved, it's all good. Just like for Elijah, those were only steps in the process. There was more that he had to do. They were just some of the first steps. There's more to do than just the physical. We still have the hard issues that we've got to work through. So God gives Elijah the third step. And the third step is he's told to travel to a mountain in Egypt. Now this mountain, it was going to take him 40 days to go on this journey to this mountain. So Elijah does the first two steps, regains his strength, and then he goes on this journey to the mountain in Egypt. When he arrives, this is what God says to him. It says in 1 Kings 19, 9 and 10, it says, And the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites, they've rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. He says it again. He says, I'm the only one. I mean, he's, he's going through the process. He's, he's regained his strength. He's, he's taken this 40-day journey, and he's still dealing with this thought of he's the only one. God doesn't debate with him. He, he actually responds in another surprising way. It says this in verse 11. It says, the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. So Elijah, he's, he's in this cave. He's told to go and stand on the outside. So he walks outside the cave. He stands on the outside. And the first thing that happens is this wind just comes ripping through. This wind that just, it, it knocks stuff over and destroys stuff in its path. And then after the wind, there's this earthquake. And if you've ever been to the Middle East or you've seen pictures of the mountains there, you know that there's a lot of loose rock on those desert mountains. So you can imagine an earthquake. I mean, stuff just starts falling. And then after that, there's this fire that appears. The fire just starts burning stuff in its path. And it says this. It says, And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left and now they are trying to kill me too. Now, what in the world is going on here in this passage? What God is doing is he's reminding Elijah of something that's very important for all of us to remember. See, if you notice, just in the story how it's told, it starts with Elijah going out and standing on the side of the mountain, and then these three forces of nature appear. And in response to the forces of nature, what does he do? He, he retreats back into the cave, That's where we find him next. That's why he has to come outside of the cave. And the reason he goes back into the cave is the same reason that we would. It was for his own safety. I mean, these forces of nature, they have no regard for human life. I mean, a wind, you know, a destructive wind that comes through, it doesn't just suddenly stop because people are in its path. Or a a fire that's going to destroy, it doesn't, it's not burning, and then people suddenly show up and it says, you know what, I'm not going to burn there anymore. They show no regard for human life. So Elijah does what any of us would have done in response to that. He retreats into a safe place. But then there's this gentle whisper. And when he hears the gentle whisper, what does it say he does? It says he, he came out of the cave. What he remembered in that moment is that God cared for him. And that is so important. See, one of the things that sets the Bible and the way that it presents God apart from other religions and the God ideas or even opinions that people share about just kind of what they think God is like. One of the things that sets God apart is revealed in the Bible is that God is revealed as a personal God. He isn't some, you know, impersonal force. He isn't the universe. He isn't some energy. No, he is a person. 
But the type of person he is, he's not some, some cruel taskmaster that's just, you know, he's waiting for us to mess up so he can punish us. He's not that kind of person. The Bible explains that he's a father. But he's not the kind of father that's, you know, absent and just kind of doing his own thing, chasing his own hobbies. No, the Bible says that he is a good and loving father, a father who cares about and takes an interest in and desires a relationship with each one of his children. So in response to these forces of nature, Elijah, he backs away. But then when he hears the whisper, what he's reminded of is the fact that God cares for him. And in response to that, he steps out of the cave. It's actually the same for you and me. Whenever we're facing this thought, I'm the only one, a truth for us to remember. This is, if you're following along in your message, this is the first blank. A truth to remember is God cares for you. God cares for you. When you're thinking, I'm the only one, the truth is, he has not abandoned you. He has not left you on your own. He is not off doing his own thing, chasing his own hobbies. No, he cares about you. There was a time in my life when I'd gotten stuck thinking this thought, I'm the only one. And a verse that really helped me is in 1 Peter chapter 5. It says this in verse 7. It says, casting all your cares on him, and it says this, because he cares about you. And something interesting is this, uh, this verse in the New Testament in 1 Peter, it's written in the Greek language. And something that's interesting about that word care, when it refers to how God cares for us, is that word kind of has two, two ideas attached to it. It has the idea of protection and then personal interest. That's kind of how God cares for us. He cares for us by offering us protection. The Bible often refers to God as a watchman. He's standing watch. And what a watchman would do is while everybody else is relaxed and kind of unaware of what's happening, the watchman would be on guard. They would be looking out on the horizon. They would see what is coming down the road. That's what God's doing. He's aware of what's going on and what's coming our way. And then he offers us protection one way he does that is he gives instruction. Okay, if you want to avoid this swamp that's headed your way, here's how you can get around that. And then there's some stuff that we face in life that when we're in the middle of it, he says, hey, here's the protection that I'll give you. He speaks specifically to those situations and he helps us navigate it and guides us through it. He offers protection. But God also takes a personal interest in each one of us. He, he, he cares about what's best for us individually. You know, tomorrow... My wife and I and our three kids, we're going to go on a road trip to visit some family. And we're going to, you know, we're going to fill the van up and go on this trip. And it's going to take us several hours to get there. And if you've ever driven for an extended period of time with a four-year-old, a two-year-old, and a six-month-old, you know that it can be crazy and the kids can get crazy. So what my wife and I have done is we've actually put a lot of thought into, well, what would be best for the kids on this trip? So we've kind of mapped out, okay, well, here's Here's when their nap times are at. Here's when they would usually eat a snack. And we've planned, okay, well, here are some parks that we could stop at along the way so that, okay, like, we'll stop here and the kids can get out and they can stretch their legs and get some energy out and we'll stay for a period of time. And we've gone over to the library and we've gotten library books that we know they like and we've got their snacks in the van and we're going to put some shows on the iPad. All things that we've done because we care about our kids. We want them to have a good experience. We want them to enjoy the road trip. So we've, we've taken a personal interest and we've put thought into what is going to be best for our kids. That's the idea of when it says God cares for you, that's the idea. He's putting personal thought into you and what is best for you. His plan for our lives, it's not just kind of like a one-size-fits-all. It's actually custom and unique because he's thinking about us and what's best for us. So just like with Elijah, 
when you start thinking this thought, I'm the only one, starting to get some traction and having a chance of breaking free, it starts with remembering the truth that God cares for you. But it actually doesn't stop there. That's just the beginning. There's actually more that needs to be done. So God speaks to Elijah, and this is what he says. Starting in verse 15, it says, The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. Now again, what, what in the world is going on here? Well, what God's revealing to Elijah is this plan to give Elijah help. Elijah feels like he's all alone and he's the only one who's this public spokesman doing God's work. So what God is saying is he's saying, you know what? I'm going to raise up other individuals to join you in this work, to partner with you, co-workers essentially, so that you're not alone, so that you're not the only one. But notice that this help that God's going to give and this help that's going to come through other people, notice that it doesn't just magically happen. Notice he's not on the side of this mountain kind of making his plea to God, and then God responds, these three individuals don't just suddenly appear. He says, Elijah, you're going to have to go to the desert of Damascus. If you compare the mountain where Elijah was when he received this word to the desert of Damascus, that's 400 miles. And I don't think he ultra-marathoned the whole thing. I think he was probably still worn out, so he probably walked. I mean, that 60 days, 80 days, I don't know how long it took him to get there. He was going to have to put in more work. And then when he got there, there's two guys he has to find that he's going to anoint king of different regions. And then Elijah or Elisha is going to be his replacement. And so he has to train him up and equip him. So what God's saying is, hey, here's the path forward. I'm going to give you real meaningful help in response to this, I'm the only one. But you're going to have to put in some work. This is going to take time and energy, and it's going to take effort. And it's actually similar for you and me. I mean, when we're thinking this thought, I'm the only one, an action that God has for us to take is to build community. That's an action that we can take. That's a path that he has for us through which he's going to give us help. He's going to give us help, and it's often going to come in the form of other people. But for us to realize that help, the thing that you and I need to do is we need to build community. And then when it comes to building community, I mean, that takes work. That takes effort. That takes choosing not to get up, give up, because it gets hard, because the, the going gets rough. You know, when I moved out here after I graduated from college, I kind of took the first job that came my way, and I'd been here for a couple months, and I was in this business job, and I just was like, I was not enjoying it. It was, a, you know, wasn't a good fit, and I hadn't made any friends yet, so I'd been here a couple months and was really kind of having a tough time and felt pretty lonely, and I, um, I called my dad, and I was throwing myself kind of a pity party and explaining to him what was going on. And um, I said, you know what, I think I'm going to leave. I think I'm going to, you know, f- go somewhere else, go find another place, move somewhere else. And, um, and I kind of wanted my dad to, you know, sympathize with me and kind of be like, yeah, you know what, you should. You should take off. You should bail. You should go do something else. And um, he didn't say that. He surprised me. And what he said was, he said, he said, Elliot, it takes four years to build integrity. It takes four years of really investing in a place and in people before they really know who you are and you really know who they are. So then he shocked me and he said, so Elliot, I think you need to stay for four years. That is not what I wanted to hear. 
I wanted him to say, oh, yeah, sure. You know, there's a lot of big cities in the world. Try them all out. You know, just bounce around. You know, get the backpack and go do the whole Europe thing. That's kind of what I wanted to hear him say. But he didn't. He said, Elliot, if this is going to be worth it, you got you to gotta lean in and you got to put forth effort. And what's interesting is I kind of look back on my story. What I realize is it was right around the four-year mark. You know, four years. I, I wasn't on staff here yet. It was just four years of kind of working in different business jobs and volunteering on Sunday mornings and getting involved in groups and getting to know people. Four years of really trying to invest. It was right around that point that stuff started to make a lot more sense. That suddenly, you know, I got this sense of, you know, I belong here. This is where I'm supposed to be. I, I have people that are both supporting me and, and I'm also helping to support them. I mean, it took about four years. Now, I'm about 12 years in, and I look back, and it's not like suddenly, like four years, it started to click, and oh, it's just been smooth sailing since then. No, time and time again, it's taken, I've had to put work in, I've had to clear stuff up, and I've had to continue to invest. But it was right around the four-year mark, and I am so glad that just because I was thinking, I'm the only one, I'm lonely, I don't fit in, I am so glad that I didn't take off. Now, I'm not saying that you never leave or move to a new place. God does move us around. But don't miss this. Don't buy the lie that a change in scenery is the solution to the thought, I'm the only one. A change in scenery is not the solution. If you're sitting there and you're thinking, I'm the only one that's going through this. I'm the only one that feels this way. I'm the only one that thinks this. Then an action that God has for you is to lean in and put in the work and build community what it was for Elijah, and that's the same for you and me. So something we've identified here at Seabreeze to really help with this is something we call the Seabreeze strategy. It's just a list of actions that you and I can repeatedly take to kind of lean in and put in work and build community. And what it starts with is it starts with just relating in real life. You know, if you want to build community, just relate in real life. Get, get time with people outside the church, real life time with people. I mean, you know, watch a game. The NBA playoffs are start, or the NBA finals are getting ready to start. Watch a game with somebody. Go play golf with somebody. Go for a walk in the park. Whatever your hobbies are, just include people in those. Ask to be included in their hobbies. If you find out that they've got a hobby, say, hey, could I join you sometime? Just relate in real life. Get to know them. Another step is what we're doing right here this morning. Attend a worship service. I mean, Bevan in the announcements, he explained one of the reasons that we gather here every Sunday. And as Christians, this gathering is very important in our walk with God. But one of the things that also happens when we gather here, I mean, there's a couple hundred of you guys in this room this morning. One of the things that happens is we're reminded that we're not the only one and we're not alone. There's a couple hundred people in this room this morning that have gathered because they want to hear something from God. They've gathered because they believe him. In those other six days of the week, it's easy to start to think, Man, am I the only one that takes this seriously? But then you get in a room like this and, I'm not the only one. I'm not alone. That's one of the things that happens in this gathering. Another action is connect in a group. You know, this morning, it's impossible for you to know everybody here. I don't know everybody here. That's not realistic. But when you have a group of people that you surround yourself with, kind of, you know, just kind of a handful of people who they're trying to take God seriously and they're trying to put into practice what they're learning, and then you likewise do the same thing and you're encouraging each other. Here, here's how I think that we could put God this into practice in this situation, or here's what I think would help with what's going on here. That's incredibly helpful. You need a group of people. You need to connect in a group. And the final action is volunteer on a team. 
And one of the things that volunteering and serving does is it just kind of gets us out of our head and reminds us that this, this just isn't all about us. You know, all these thoughts we've looked at, a lot of these thoughts, they come from a place of we're just focusing on our challenges and what we're going through and how life is hard for us or, or we're tired or this isn't what we want. And volunteering kind of has this way of kind of getting us to lift our eyes and see, oh, there's more going on. And the reason we say volunteer on a team is it's actually as you, as you get around other people and you work alongside them over a period of time, that's actually where who you are starts to come out and who they are starts to come out. You get to know people. When you're working towards a bigger vision, putting an effort repeatedly again and again and again, you really get to know people and get to know them well. Actually, uh, my wife and I, before, before we got married, actually before we were even dating, we were volunteering together, and um, there was one situation, actually the first time I ever had to ask her for forgiveness was when we were volunteering together. We weren't dating, weren't in a relationship, but I just did something that was knuckleheaded, and I knew it was bad, and so then I had to say, hey, I was wrong, will you forgive me for doing that? Actually, that started to kind of connect us. I mean, what you find is you start volunteering with people on a team, and you start to get to know them. That's where help gets real, because they know who you really are, and you know who they are. So if you want to build community, these actions, these are incredibly helpful. See, for Elijah, for him to get unstuck from the I'm the only one thought, first he had to remember the truth that God cared for him. And then after he remembered that truth, then God said, okay, now Elijah, here's the path forward. It's not going to be easy. It's going to take time. It's going to take work. But I have help for you, and the help's going to come in the form of other people. And now you've got to get working. You've got to build community. And it's actually the same for you and me. So when we're thinking that thought, I'm the only one, we've got to just stop and say, you know what? God cares for me. He offers me protection when I listen to him and I follow him, and he takes a personal interest in me. He he cares about me, and God wants to help me. He wants to give me the help that I need so that I can get unstuck, and that help's going to come through other people. So you know what? I need to do the work. And I need to build community. Even though it's hard, even though I might not feel like it, over time, if I do this, I know it's going to be worth it. In each one of these messages, we've identified a verse to memorize. So the verse for today that I want to leave you with is this. In Deuteronomy 31, I'd encourage you to memorize it. Deuteronomy 31, 8 says this. It says, the Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Remember, God cares for you. He offers real help, and the help comes through other people. So do the work and build community. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for stories like the story of Elijah, stories of individuals that we can relate to and we can see ourselves in their story, stories where we figure out how to make sense of what we're going through, and then you start to identify the path forward. So God, I thank you for the fact that you care about each one of us individually. You take an interest in us and you protect us. And then God, I thank you for the fact that you offer help and that help so often comes through other people. So God, I pray that we would, we would not give up and we would not isolate ourselves, but we would lean in and do the work to build community. Thank you again. In Jesus' name, amen.